1 Samuel 8. So, big context. For 300 plus years since the death of Joshua and his contemporaries, Israel is, is operating under a system of government. You can call it a theocracy. God is the king. And you have these local leaders, elders or judges, who function on a, on a very local level, helping people with disputes and issues. And occasionally, if there's an, you, almost every time it's an external military threat, you have this external military threat. God raises up a judge to lead the people in battle. And that judge reigns and leads for, a, the, you know, for the, the duration of his life. And when he dies, it, the, the judgeship kind of filters back to the local level. You don't have any national leaders from Joshua on. There, there, there are none. All leadership is local again. And occasionally you have a judge who's raised up in order to lead the people against an external military threat. That was the governmental system that Israel lived under for 300 plus years. And we closed First uh, Samuel 7 last week. We saw an, an ideal picture of what that looks like. Israel repents. They turn to the Lord after 20 years of, of corrupt uh, worship after 20 years of everybody doing as they saw fit during the book, during the time of Samuel. Uh, they repent. God raises up Samuel. He leads them in battle against the Philistines. They defeat the Philistines where he puts the rock out in the middle of the field. This is thus far has God helped me. He names the rock Ebenezer, meaning thus far has God helped us. And then you have this 20 year period of peace for Israel. They don't have any threats internally or externally, again, it's an ideal picture of what life looks like under this theocracy, under this government that God has set up. Now we're going to fast forward 20 more years. So from chapter 7 to chapter 8, 20 years elapses and things change again. So when Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders or judges. The name of his firstborn was Joel and the name of his second was Abijah. And they served at Beersheba, but his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you're old and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead or to judge us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord told him, listen to all the people are saying to you, it is not you they've rejected, but they've rejected me as their king. As they've done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. So just to set up, Israel's asking for a king. You see, that's pretty straightforward. Samuel's old, tries to do the right thing and to appoint uh, judges. To take his place, he appoints his sons. That's unusual. If you read the book of Judges, there's no passing on from father to son of any type of power or office or responsibility. So that's unusual that Samuel would uh, try to appoint his sons and then his sons don't have the character. They're corrupt. And Samuel doesn't argue when the elders come to him and say, your, your sons, we don't want to follow them. They're not the kind of guys that we want in leadership. But rather than saying... Appoint other people to be our judges. They say appoint a king, which is a huge, it's a monumental shift in Israel's history. I just told you for 300 plus years, Israel functioned without a central person in leadership. You've got to go all the way back to Joshua and then before him, Moses, 
to the, the last time you see a national figure leading Israel. And both Moses and Joshua did not function uh, as kings. They, that's not how they function. They, they function as Moses really as a prophet leading the people. Joshua really functioned as a military commander more than anything else, leading the people in battle, taking the promised land. They're, 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 they're not kings in any sense of the word. And the elders come to Samuel and say, that's what we want. Just like everybody else has, that's what we want. Samuel is displeased, or literally, uh, Samuel thought it was evil. That's what he says, literally, when they ask. But you can go all the way back to Genesis 49, and there are echo, or there are hints of monarchy in Israel's future. Genesis 49.10, you can see the scripture up there on the screen when uh, it's Jacob is giving blessings to his 12 sons. To Judah, he says... He's going to rule. There's going to be a, a, a he's going to have the scepter. And then in Deuteronomy 17, God says to Moses, here's what's going to happen. They're going to your people. These people are going to enter the land and they're going to settle. And they're going to ask for a king. And here's the way the king ought to function. And you can see that in Deuteronomy 17. I've, I've uh, just pulled out the, the main pieces there. That's not how their kings function. Uh, you'll see if you read first and second Kings. But there does seem to be a monarchy in Israel's future. It seems to be something that God had prepared for, maybe even he planned for as well. So I don't think it's the request. It's not the asking of a king for a king that displeases Samuel, that caught that he thinks is evil. It's the reason for it. We want to be like the other nations. And, and God responds in a, or sees things very similar to the way Samuel does. He sees it as rejection of him. He doesn't see it as a good and right even again, if the request is okay, the reason for it is not good and right. He sees it as them rejecting him. They're not willing to submit to him. They're not willing to trust him any longer. He says, just like they've always done. Since I took them out of Egypt, they've rebelled against me. This is another example of their rebellion and their rejection. But interesting, what God says to Samuel twice in that little bitty paragraph is listen. And what he's saying is do what they want. That's what that word listen means. Do what they want. Do what they're asking. Give them what they're asking for. Warn them. Let them know what this king is going to be like. But give them what they desire. So here's a description of the king and what the king will do. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king. Samuel said, this is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. I want you to listen to the number of times the word take is used in this one description. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and others to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and donkeys. He will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flock and you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and to fight our battles. When Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. The Lord answered, listen to them. And give them a king. Then Samuel said to the Israelites, everyone go back to your own town. We'll see next week uh, Samuel picking a king uh, out of that. So Samuel describes this king and you heard take, 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 take. That's what the king's going to do. Samuel's saying you're not just picking one guy 
and, 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 and folding him into the mix of power in Israel. You're creating an entire bureaucratic structure that's both military and administrative, and it's going to be built on your backs. He's going to take the best of everything you have. He's going to take your sons. He's going to take your daughters. He's going to take 10% of everything that you grow. He's going to take your livestock. He's going to take your slaves. He's going to take everything. Because he's got to support this standing army that you so want. And he's going to support this, this royal house that's going to be built. And all of the people who are connected to that. It's going to take thousands and thousands of people to support this ruler. Samuel is attested as a prophet. God did not allow any of Samuel's words to fall to the ground. The people don't want to hear it. It's ironic. Uh, The people won't listen to God, and God is saying, Samuel, listen to the people who are not listening to me. Listen to them and give them what they want. God's able to use it. Actually, he uses the fallenness of human kings to prepare uh, Israel over the course of centuries uh, for, for a Messiah. But at this point... The request, whether it's good or bad, the motivation is terrible, and it's explicit there in verse 20. We want to be like everybody else. And what God says is just give them what they want. And we'll see how that plays out for them in the coming weeks uh, with Saul, who is a king just like the kings of the nations. So for us, I was thinking about that. The last couple of that verse 19 and 20, that's where I want us to focus. We want a king over us to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles So that's their request so that we can be like the other nations. That's their motivations. We're going to look at both that request and their motivation. So the request first, we want a king. We want somebody to go before us. Uh, On one hand, to me, it's pretty that's understandable. It's easier to put your trust in something that you can see and hear and touch than an invisible God. Up to this point. There was no central figure that Israel could look at and say, that guy's going to take care of us. That guy's going to blow the trumpet. That guy's going to rally the troops. That guy's going to be the tip of the spear when we're, uh, when we're being attacked. They didn't have that. When they were oppressed, when they were attacked, they had to trust that in that moment, God was going to raise up somebody from somewhere to deliver them. Their history says he always does. But it's difficult. That's, it's hard to trust what you can't see. Why it's called faith. Trusting in what you can't see. It's faith. Much easier to trust something that you can see, something that you can listen to, something that you can touch. You see there on the screen, Israel is surrounded. Israel is the brown on the left next to the blue sea. And all of those colors, those are their enemies. Their enemies were, they were surrounded by enemies. You can imagine in that context, How tempting it would be to say, give us a champion. Give us a king who can raise a standing army. So every time one of these nations attacks us, we don't have to trust that God's going to raise up a leader. And that leader is going to be able to rally the people to fight. There was no standing army at this point. Someone like Gideon would stand up and say, here's what God is doing. Who's with me? And then people would come to him. And that that was the army. They weren't trained they weren't, they weren't prepared. They just came together in the moment called by God. Again, if that's where you live, that's a scary arrangement. And again, very tempting to say, I want a king who's going to have an army and they're going to be professionals and they're all going to wear the same thing and they're going to be trained and they're going to have weapons. And when somebody comes against us, we know those guys are going to fight. 
And maybe there's even a part of them that says, then that's good because then I know I don't have to fight if they come because I'm not a part of that army. I don't know how much fear played a part. It seems to me that it was not much. Say 20 years of peace. I think they're motivated much more in terms of wanting to be like the nations around them. But again, it, it's at least understandable that they would ask. And, it's, and, and the same thing happens for us. We don't necessarily ask for a king, but it's a whole lot easier for us to trust in things that we can see and touch and taste and hear than it is to trust in an invisible God. You can take healing. We just prayed for healing. We're sick. It's easy to trust in Advil and surgeries and doctors. It's easy. It's easier to trust those things than it is to trust the Lord. We're not Christian scientists. We don't say there's no such thing as, or that medicine is bad or that God doesn't use it. God absolutely works through all of those things, 100%. Just like God worked through human leaders. It wasn't bad that Israel wanted a leader. It was bad that they wanted a leader like the other nations had, instead of the leader the way God chose, which is, let me read, becomes a question of trust. Do I trust that God heals me and he may use Advil and he may use... Uh, arthroscopic knee surgery and he may use physical therapy or do I trust those things for Israel do you trust God or do you trust this person and God absolutely is going to work through an army and he's going to work through leadership he does that throughout the Old Testament but is your trust in those people and in those systems or is your trust ultimately in him it's a, it's a fine fine line it just, and it runs through the hearts of every one of us do I trust that God provides for me or do I trust that my job provides for me the way he provides for me is through my job. But ultimately, where, where's my trust? The, how do you know? What's your level of stress and anxiety? The higher your level of stress and anxiety, the more likely you're trusting in the instruments or the means that God uses and not God himself. And that can just be your own internal litmus test as you look through the different areas of your life and ask where you're trusting. So, so tempting. To trust what we can see and taste and touch. Maybe even on some levels control. So easy to fall into the trap of trusting into the instrument, the, the instrumentation, the means that God uses. And to quit trusting in him. Motivation is where I want to spend most of our time. We'll close with this. Their motivation, I don't think it's fear. Although that may have played a part. They explicitly say we want to be like everybody else. They're trading their identity. What God says in the formation of Israel repeatedly, there are a few scriptures up on the screen and there's dozens more. You're not going to be like everybody else. You're different. You're my chosen people. You're my, you're, you're my precious treasure. You're this nation that I'm, I'm dealing with differently than I deal with every other nation. I want every other nation to see what it looks like to be a people lordship. You're not going to be like them. When you enter the land, I think it's Deuteronomy 18, don't do what they do. Don't imitate their practices. You're going to be different. If you ever read the book of Leviticus and you wonder why that stuff, part of it is because God is saying this is what makes you different. It's called the Holiness Code, chapter 19 to 26. And those are the, those are the places where we bog down in Leviticus really fast. All of these rules that don't make sense to us. What God is doing is drawing a fence around his people and saying, you're going to be different. Because I said so. There's nothing wrong with wearing clothes that are partly cotton and partly polyester. But that's a rule. Everything's got to be made out of the same fabric in the Old Testament. Why? Because you're going to be different. You're going to be holy. Set apart for me. Set apart from them. Set apart 
for me. And what you see here in chapter 8 is Israel saying, we don't want it anymore. The need to belong is universal. And Israel is saying, we want to fit in. We want them to call us on Friday night. We want them to make room for us at the lunchroom table. We want to know that they're including us in the, on the list. We want to be like them. And the same thing happens for us as new covenant people, as followers of Jesus. We are still called out. We still are and we're still tempted to want to fit in. And it doesn't change when you graduate from high school. A universal human need is to belong. And when we look, we want to fit in. All of us do. There, 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 are, there are a few people who are wired in a way that say, I, whatever the crowd's doing, I'm doing the opposite. But that's a small group of people. That's not a holy motivation either. They're still being, their life is still being determined by the crowd. They're just saying, I'm doing the opposite of what the crowd does instead of everything the crowd does. It's not, they're not being led by the Spirit. But for all of us, there's this temptation to want to fit in. We all want to know that somebody wants us. We all want to know that there's some group that wants us to be a part, that we belong to, that we can join. And so that temptation is still there. So what do we do? How do we handle that? The classic Christian understanding of our posture towards the world. And when I say world, uh, I want you to think of the systems, the values of creation that are not under the influence of God. So you can think about it as, as the fall, the fallen, the fallen world. You can't necessarily grab it, but it's the systems, it's the values, it's the priorities, it's the ways of a fallen creation not submitted to God. And this is how Jesus says we're to respond. The classic understanding in the world, not of the world. This is taken from Jesus' priestly prayer in John 17. So this is Jesus talking, Jesus praying to the Father. I've given them, that's his followers, Your word, Father, and the world, that fallen system, has hated them. Why? Because they're not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not. Sanctify them, make them holy by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world... I have sent them into the world. So you see the idea of in. We've been sent into the world, but not of. That's, that's not where we get our marching orders. We don't take our cues. We take our cues from Jesus. He calls us out of the world and then sends us back into the world. Again, classic understanding to be in, but not of. So initially when we hear that, our response for most people, it's okay, it's just somewhat superficial. It's to say, well, how do I get out of the world? And so it's kind of, it's this picture. We see our, I didn't, there wasn't a better picture than a globe, so that's all I could come up with for the world. So the idea is, well, how do I get out of there? And we define holiness by the separation between us and the world. The classic expression of this, maybe the best version of that where we live now is it's the Mennonites. How far away can I get? What are all the things, all the ways I'm not going to engage in the things of this fallen system? There's a, a it's not a denomination, it's a movement. It's called the Holiness Movement in the 1900s. And they had lists of things. You can't dance. 
and you can't drink and you can't cuss and you can't smoke and you can't go to movies and you can't swim with people of the opposite gender and women can't wear pants. There's a whole list of things. It's called, it, it was their version of a holiness code. What they were saying is we're, 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 we're moving ourselves as far as we can from the world. We recognize we're separate from. That's what it means to be holy for us. We're separate from this. God has called us out from the system and the values of this world as they're expressed through playing cards and listening to music and dancing and all these other things. It's a list of all the things that we cannot do. It's, a, it's their version of Leviticus 19 to 26. These purity laws is basically what it became. That's helpful to some degree. There should be some difference between the way a, someone who follows Jesus lives and the way someone who doesn't follow Jesus lives. There absolutely should be some term because it remains superficial. It doesn't actually deal with your heart. You may change your behavior, but your heart hasn't necessarily changed. This is a better picture How do I remove the world from me? That's the question I need to be asking. Not how do I get myself out of the world. I have, like, the the monks from the 300s and the 400s, they did some great things. I do not think that's a helpful posture to take at all. I don't. I don't think that's the answer for us. How do we withdraw so much from from this fallen system that we don't get stained by it? Jesus says, I'm sending you into the world. And so what does it look like for us not to say, how do I remove myself from the world, but how do I remove the world from me? How do, what, what needs to happen in my heart? What needs to happen in my heart so that I no longer am, am, am swayed by the values and the priorities and the systems of this world? What does it look like for me to live differently, not necessarily because I have a list of behaviors I'm not going to engage in, but because I recognize my identity is found somewhere else. What does that begin to look like? That's a deeper work. It, it's not, I'm not criticizing at all. He was greatest person born in the old covenant, John the Baptist. He's kind of that old version of holiness. He lived in a desert. He ate locusts. He wore camels. He was a weird guy. He was. He was weird. He went and lived in a desert. Until it was time for him to preach. And he had this period of a handful of months where he was on fire and then he got thrown in jail. That was his, that's kind of that version of holiness, separate from, different from, y'all come out to me in the desert. And obviously he played a huge role in preparing the way for Jesus. When you look at Jesus, though, he's our model. John the Baptist isn't. Jesus is our model. And that's not how he lived. He didn't withdraw from everyone. He lived in the midst of everyone. Again, he was, a, he was a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He was considered a drunkard and a glutton. He lived and he never sinned. And that's, there was nothing in his heart for sin to grab onto. There were no handholds in his heart for sin to, to, to attach itself to. So he was able to live in the world and truly not be of it. To live in the world and not sin. To engage with people who were fallen, who were corrupt, who were sinful through and through, and and not be tainted by that. He pulled them up. They didn't pull him down. And that's the picture for us. What does it look like to remove the world from my heart so that I can be sent into it and be effective in the world? It's not the kind of the hyper-relevant edge that you see in so much of the church today where, you know, people 
You see it in, in Christians, and they, they act just like people who don't follow Jesus. They cuss just as much, and they drink just as much, and they watch the same things on TV in the same mood. You can't tell any difference, in the, whether it's under the banner of freedom in Christ or evangelism. I don't know. I think it's under the banner of selfishness, honestly. I, I don't know. But that's, what the, that's what's put out there. We can kind of do anything. There should be some differences, and those differences should be rooted in your heart, in your sense of identity. This is what... Uh, is said about us in First Peter 2. It's an identity statement. You are, therefore live. You are a holy nation. You are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood. That's who you are. Therefore live as aliens and strangers. You don't start with the aliens and strangers part. You start with the royal priesthood, holy nation, people belonging to God part. We start with who we are and then we allow that to affect the choices that we make. If you want to see the world removed from your heart, the way to do that is to dive into your identity as an adopted son or daughter of God. You play lots of different parts, lots of roles. You're a husband, you're a father, you're a lawyer, you're a work on the admin team here at the church, you're a friend, you're a son, you're a brother, you're all of those things. What are you fundamentally? You're a son of God. And at some point, those roles can come into conflict with one another. And that's why it's so important for you to know who you are at your core. And you allow who you are at your core to influence how you live under all, in all of those different roles. You're a son of God or a daughter of God first. And you're all of those other things second. And if there's any conflict, your primary identity wins. It's this idea of kind of being raised in a family. All of you have been raised in a family and you know what it means to be a fill in the blank. Whatever your last name is, like you know what that's like. You know, and some of that stuff you have to shed as you get older because it's not good. And some of it is good. And you carry it with you and you pass it on to your children and they pass it on to their children. What we want is to recognize we've been adopted into the family of God and we want to allow that relationship to so form and shape our hearts that we say, this is, this is how followers of Jesus live. I don't need a list. I don't need a list. You don't have to give me a, a check sheet and tell me all the things I can't do. I know how a follower of Jesus lives. You want to get to a place where you have that degree of confidence in who you are as a son or a daughter. You so know the character and the nature of your father. And you have so been conformed into the image of his son. And you're so sensitive to the leading of his spirit that you don't need a sheet of paper that says, oh, yeah, I can't drink and I can't dance and I can't play cards. You don't need that. You just this is how people who follow Jesus act. This is what we do. Just like you don't need a list to live out the values of the family of origin that you come from. It's a heart transformation that we're looking for. What Israel said is we don't, we're not interested in any of that. We want to be like everybody else. We're still tempted to say, how much like everybody else can we be? How, how, I, 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 I want somebody to call me. I want something to do. I want to get invited to the party. I want to have somebody to eat lunch. I want those things. I don't want to be the guy that doesn't get invited. I'm the only one from the office that doesn't get invited. I don't want to be that guy. I want them to include me on the softball team. Whatever those things are for you, that's human nature. That's a real temptation. And what I'm saying about that, the, the response to that is to say, I'm in the world, but I'm not of it. 
I can engage in those with those people. And I can engage even in activities with all those folks without allowing those things to define what I do and what I don't do. I'm defined ultimately by my relationship to the Father, that he's adopted me into his family and that I'm a son or a daughter of his. And that permeates all of my relationships and all of my decisions. It takes time to move in that direction. There are definitely moments of breakthrough along the way. But it's an ongoing process. It's what we've been talking about for weeks and even months now, this idea of what's your highest and your best? What's your fundamental desire? Is it him? Before anything else, are you saying, I want to seek first the kingdom and his righteousness? I'm hungry to grow in relationship with him. If that's what's ultimately bouncing around in your heart, then your identity will begin to to, to shift. You'll begin to be who you are. You are part of a holy nation. You are part of a chosen people. You are part of a royal priesthood. That's who you are by adoption. It's who you are because of your relationship with the Father. And that will become who you are by behavior and lifestyle. Let's pray. God, I pray for each one of us. One... I pray you convict. Are there places where we're trusting in the things that you use and not in you? You may just want to run through. You know yourself. You know what you're prone to lean on. Just ask him, God, am I putting too much weight on that? Have I maybe even unintentionally begun to trust in a thing and not in you? It's easy to trust in your gifts. It's easy to trust in your intelligence, your charm. It's easy to trust in relationships, finances. I think one thing that's really common, this is sexist, I guess, stereotypical for guys. It's super easy for us to trust in our ability to figure things out, solve problems. Just ask the Lord to convict you. And all you have to do if you feel that sense of conviction. Just confess. God, I confess this good thing that you've given to me. I've begun to trust in it and not in you. I want to repent. I recognize you're the source of all good things. I want to live dependently upon you. I don't want to be proud. That is independent. I want to be humble. That is dependent upon you. I recognize my need for grace. Ongoing, that's a great thing to pray on a daily basis. God, I recognize my need for grace. <clears throat> and go through the different areas of your life and just explicitly say, God, I need your grace to love my spouse well. I can't do that on my own. I need your grace to parent my children. I need your grace to do my job, affect grace to be a friend. You begin to confess those things to the Lord, state those things. It, 
reminds you of your dependence upon him and keeps you from trusting in the things that he's using instead of himself. Second thing, God, I pray for us. She would show us what it is to be in and not of this world. We recognize your desire is to redeem. You don't delight in anyone perishing. Your desire is to redeem all that you've made. And God, we know we're, we're part of the plan. You send us back into this world to proclaim the good news of a coming kingdom. You send us back into this world to, to live redeemed and transformed. And God, we want to do that effectively. So would you help us, God? I pray for each one of us that before we're anything else, we would remember that we're your children. That that would be our defining characteristic. That you've adopted us into your family, Father. And we're yours. God, I pray that we would begin to recognize that we're holy because you say so. And we're righteous because you say so. And we're powerful because you say so. God, I pray that our life will begin to line up with that truth. God, I pray for those who are lonely, who desperately need and want family. God, would you place them in family? You say you do that. You place the orphans in families. God, would you do that for the lonely? pray for all of us that we would exhibit a holiness that's full and joyful and fruitful and, 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 and honestly attractive. It causes people to look towards you. We don't want to live small and stingy and miserly lives. We don't want to be defined by what we're not, but by whose we are. So God, move in each one of us. I pray our deepest desire, our highest and our best on a daily basis, not in some lofty, ethereal sense, but down and dirty on Monday. Our highest and best, our deepest desire would be, it would be you. It would be your presence. It would be to hear your voice. It would be to sense your nearness. It would be to read your word. God, I pray that you would, we would hunger and thirst for you above all things. So God, move in our hearts this morning with effect, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys can stay seated.